A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 147 of Confessions of a Marketer, the future of advertising. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Catherine Hayes is here to talk about the future of advertising. We will get to that in just a moment. We have been on hiatus for a couple of weeks as we looked around and assessed this changed world we live in these days. The world has turned upside down, and I wondered how to make the interviews I already had in the can before the crisis started relevant to this world. And I think the best way to do it is to just forge ahead. The things we knew before COVID-19 took over our consciousness will return in some form at some point in the future. Life also goes on. So we'll continue Confessions of a Marketer with that spirit, dealing with COVID-19 where it makes sense and thinking about how marketing can contend with all the things that are happening. One thing I will ask of you, if you are hiring marketers or if you have a compelling story to tell about finding a job in this environment, I'd love to hear from you. Just email me at confessionsof at iCloud.com. Most of all, what I hope for you and your families and all of our families is continued good health. We do have a number of chats in the works, including Michael Mathias on retail in the COVID-19 age. Plus, in the weeks ahead, Henrik Becker, Senia Monten, Dave Woodward, Larry Ludwig, and Naira Perez. Lots more in store. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. Okay, on to Catherine Hayes. Catherine is an executive advisor, speaker, and co-author of Beyond Advertising, Creating Value Through All Customer Touchpoints which synthesizes more than 200 diverse perspectives across disciplines and around the world and yields a broader conception of the scope, practice, and value of advertising, encompassing every communication or point of interaction between a brand and a person. It is an important book. Catherine also previously served as co-founder and executive director of the Wharton Future of Advertising program, 
And if that weren't enough, she is also host of the CMO Spotlight on Sirius XM Channel 132, where she speaks with the world's top CMOs. We had a great discussion that I'm excited to share with you. Let's get to it. Catherine, it's great to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. I know we started talking about this a while ago, and it's wonderful that the day has finally come. It's wonderful to be with you. I've uh, I've been a big fan of the show for a while now, and since we spoke about it, I've, of course, tried to tune in that much more. So it's a privilege to be joining you on the show. Thanks so much. Can you share your background and what you're up to these days? How long do we have? <laughs> we, we've got just digital bits flying through the air right now. So as many as you want to use up, go ahead. I will, I will get, try to give the short version. I was born and raised in Vermont. So I, that's very much a part of my roots and in fact, still have a place up there. So kind of a country girl at heart, but then went off to school in Europe for a few years and then to Georgetown School of Foreign Service Worked for DC, kind of revolving door, typical government, consulting, local uh, trade association, and then off to Wharton to the Lauder program, which was just started. So it was a dual degree program for MBA and a master's from the School of Arts and Sciences in International Studies. So also very international in scope and was recruited by AT&T. So came to New Jersey to work in strategy and marketing and corporate sales, and also on the chairman's staff, putting executive programs together when Mike Armstrong was there. So I was there for about 16 years. And then joined, was recruited to do similar programs that I had done at AT AT&T, a lot of pioneering stuff at the American Cancer Society Hmm. in their Eastern Division. So spent three years as a national director working on forging partnerships and relationships with corporations throughout the state and working with the local offices of the uh, American Cancer Society. So that was, that was, as you can imagine, pretty, pretty rewarding. And then the last chapter of my career, the most recent chapter, I should say, was at the Wharton School. So I co-founded a research center there, sort of within a research center, a program called the Wharton Future of Advertising Program with Professor Jerry Wind who's a sort of a serial entrepreneur at the Wharton School and uh, a professor there who had founded the SEI Center for Advanced Studies and Management. So we built that from a concept, an idea, to a global advisory board of over 90 people from around the world from all sorts of different disciplines and, importantly, worked together with them and an even broader community to write a book on what the future of advertising could and should be. Um, And that wrapped up in 2018, the program, when um, the professor became emeritus. And so working on those concepts and working with executives and business leaders, um, getting the good word out still. If I look at your career, and um, from what I can glean from our our discussion here and previously, is Mm. you like building things. That would be accurate. I'm absolutely a a builder. I I love pioneering. I love thinking about what needs to be and then collaborating, being people together to try new things and new ways to make better things happen. I am a builder. It's true. And now as an advisor to CMOs and other C-suite executives, what are a couple of pieces of advice you give them about the impact of their decisions on their businesses, their people, and their communities? And what's interesting about your career is 
you know, working for AT&T and then for the American Cancer Society, you've kind of been on both sides, community, the business side, and the people side. It's an interesting combination. Yeah, I think that's, um, and I think it's one of the things that I enjoyed bringing to academia was having, you know, had P&L for a billion plus product line and you know, marketing budgets and and having to manage groups of people and that sort of thing. So to be able to have that and also to be on the other side with organizations trying to work with corporations. So I, you know, I feel as though most recently in particular, and, and especially through the work that we did through the Wharton Future of Advertising program, WFOA for short, was to really, <laughs> you know, essentially the, it's, you know, and advising is a tricky word. I, I like to think about it as sort of constructive conversations, but more along the lines of trying to say, you know, have you taken the opportunity to really step back from the day to day? from the demands of growth and ROI and this quarter and staffing and retention and those sorts of things to really think ahead, to really sort of think more aspirationally about where you want to take your business as well as your personal legacy over the next five to 10 years. It sounds like something good business executives should be doing, but probably aren't. And I really learned it during the Wharton program because we held annual meetings where that's exactly what we asked executives to do, to stop what they're doing, put everything down and come, you know, collaborate with different leaders from around the world to, to you know, they were very interactive. This was not people standing up in front presenting. It was very much sharing and discussing. And that was the feedback that we had, which is I, I just don't take or make the time to try to really put my sights on something bigger. And what's occurred to me, especially lately in some of the conversations that I've been having, is that it's not just about, you know, the business. It's also about, you know, a personal legacy. What is it going to mean for when I look back on my career, in addition to making a decent wage and more, and in addition to achieving, exceeding all of the corporate objectives that were set for me, what, what really is going to happen to, to the world and what's the, my personal legacy and all of that? And that's been exciting and interesting. So it's where one's personal values come in. Mm, it's certainly that. I think the other thing about it, Mark, is that it's also about the recognition, and this is sort of the bigger topic of what's I believe is important for, for companies and executives within them to think about is, the, both the intended consequences, the unintended consequences of what our businesses and corporations are having as an impact upon the world, upon people, upon communities, upon the planet, um, flora and fauna, <laughs> and, yep, and, yep. and understanding that if there's not an awareness of what that currently is in a, in a very holistic way, then we may be leaving a legacy that is not even something that we intended to because we didn't make the time to really take a look at what those choices and resource allocations are doing and the impact that they're having. So it's a bigger thing than just personal values. It's also sort of understanding. It's a, it's a sense of responsibility and awareness around the impact of what you're doing. Yeah. It's interesting because it's very easy as a leader to think about one's 
legacy, right? But uh, whether you're being honest with yourself about it is the question. Yeah. And I think, I guess I feel as though there's a a wonderful opportunity sort of, you know, being honest with yourself, it's often helpful to have a mirror held up for you or to hold a mirror up to yourself, right? And I feel as though we're at a point now where businesses are being held more to account for what's in that mirror, for what's being reflected. And I think you're probably familiar as as your listeners are with the Edelman Trust Barometer that's presented Mm -hmm. every year at Davos, um, this having been the 20th year that they've presented it. And it's sort of really coming into stark reality, just how much businesses and corporations and, and thereby their leaders are being held account for what's going on in the world, both by what's happened, the impact that's happened, as well as the responsibility and the the desire for business leaders to take the lead. I think they said something like 74, the opinion was 74% of CEOs should take the lead in addressing some of these world problems. And 76% said, I trust my employer to do something about it. So it's sort of like everything else <laughs> in the world, two sides of the same coin or, you know, the, the two parts of a sword where, you know, it's certainly, a, it's an accountability and a responsibility, but it's also an opportunity too, to think more creatively um, and to think with the notion of an and mentality as opposed to an either or mentality. Right. And that's always been the argument, uh, you know, for companies not being able to um, be environmentally aware is because they got to run a business and they can't do that. But now it's not an or, it's an and or a must. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, again, came out of the the research and the work that we did at the program is in bringing everybody together to think about this is very much what happens when you do force yourself to say, Okay, we're not going to make choices. We can't choose between, you know, throwing out the baby and the bath. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to. Uh, did I make that analogy right? I'm not sure that I did. Um, but, <laughs> but how to really hold both of those, and that the outcomes that come of forcing yourself to think about how to achieve both at the same time, often in most cases, brings the results up for both that much more. It elicits more creativity, it engages people more, it challenges our better selves to sort of consider more broadly what the options are and what the outcomes could be. So there's a lot of goodness that comes from it that that has some great spillover effect onto other parts of, you know, the very real aspects of, of making a business run profitably. Yeah. Well, you can be profitable and ethical at the same time. You can hold both of those thoughts in your head. Right. And there's never been a better time for it. I think you're in just really good company. I think that's the thing that I have found, Mark, so striking over the past couple of years. It's something that we talked about when we published our book in 2017, but I've just been so struck by this groundswell of embracing that notion, certainly with um, the Business Roundtable and the signatories, and one can be cynical and say, okay, yes, sure. they signed their names. Where the heck is the results? And what have they done for me? Like, you know, where is it? But you have to start somewhere. And you really right. have to start, as we know, in storytelling and marketing by changing the narrative. And that I really feel as though is gaining far more traction than I've ever seen. 
um, and going beyond just sort of the do-gooders off to the side, but to some fundamental people, much less, you know, the Wall Street, <laughs> who is actually having right. analysts on quarterly calls, much less saying, what's your sustainability policies? How are you building that into your practices? And uh, and certainly from an investment perspective, that's beginning to change. So there's never been a better time with more support that you're not going to look like an idiot or sound like a bleeding heart to be having these conversations and having them seriously with your team and with your, if you're a marketer, with your CEO. Yeah. It's not long ago, 10, 15 years ago, where sustainability wasn't even in the top 100 list for a CEO. So it's pretty extraordinary that in a relatively short period of time, it has become in the top five. I agree. And and also, you know, we all know about CSR, corporate social responsibility, and that was over there. Yeah. And you had a department for it. And you did cause marketing and you had pink ribbons and you had a philanthropic arm and you did that over there. And then over here, you did business. And I think that right. too, I mean, that was certainly the case when I was at, was at AT&T and it was, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just to your point, it, the evolution and the, how rapid that evolution has been to where we are now, I think speaks certainly volumes about the benefit of burning platform as we exactly. used to call it, right? You know, how are we going to change? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, you know, let's set this whole thing on fire and see if we can get creative and certainly uh, in terms of what's going on with the planet and communities, unfortunately, we're there. Yeah. Do I sound too doom and gloom here? Is this a re- no, no? It's <laughs> okay because this is a hopeful so message. I, think, I just want to be clear. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think that's that's the point that when you look around at the world today, it seems like we're all on the same burning platform, right? And we've all got to dive into the ocean together. And that's not a dire thing. That's a hopeful thing that it forces you to do certain things. So so if the climate crisis is getting to a point where we're going to absolutely have to do something, well, okay, maybe we could have done it earlier, but it's a good thing that it's going to force us into doing right. something to to make the world better. You know, the ethics scandals of the you know the early two thousands forced uh, accountability, literally, right? Right. <laughs> it forced accountability of corporations, so so that those types of situations would be avoided. Would it have been nice if that hadn't happened? Yeah, but it did happen, and it forced some legislation to make sure that companies are more accountable, literally. So so bad things can turn into good things. True, and we're certainly not there yet in terms of full accountability and, and sure. full kinds of things. But I guess there's carrot and stick. There's certainly regulations and that sort of thing to to force with fines and that kind of thing. I guess what I tend to, and, and from a systemic change standpoint, that absolutely has to be policy supporting this and yep. to your point, accounting practices that are supportive of this. <laughs> I guess the, I tend to think about, especially in talking with individuals and executives, what is within their scope and control on a day-to-day basis and the immense amount of resources that are available to be able to do that. I think the other sort of carrot in this is uh, if you ask any executive what, you know, their top three, what keeps you awake at night, I would say nine and a half out of 10 times people is going to be in there attracting, retaining, and motivating great people. 
And, yep. you know, we're finding there's research after research, certainly anecdotal, but but truly not even just our, our favorite millennials, but across the board, people want their organization, the company for whom they work to be addressing these sorts of things. And they're going to be more motivated, more, more prideful, more um, wanting to, to work hard for an organization that's broadly trusted and respected because of the choices that it's making. And so the sort of uh, externality, the wonderful externality of, of starting to address these sorts of things and engaging employees and, and stakeholders across the board in this is that you're attracting the kinds of people that have the kind of creativity and, and uh, purpose to, to want to really make these sorts of things happen. And that's, a, that's an important aspect of it. So let's talk about your book, Beyond Advertising, which paints a picture in which all touch points are orchestrated and aligned. How does that work exactly? And is this close to being a reality? It is. It is getting closer. You know, the underlying concept behind it, Mark, is is sort of the why of orchestrating all touch points. Because I think in the past, traditionally, we've thought about the four Ps, right? And how marketers when you, you know, basics of marketing are responsible for the four Ps. But in fact, marketers in this day and age have had just responsibility for the message, for advertising, for media budgets, and really not anything about product, much less pricing, placement. Uh, and so their scope, the marketing scope, was actually quite narrow and really about communications and connections from a media perspective. And so what we really learned in doing the research of the book, which was collaborating with some 225 thought leaders from around the world, thought leaders, let's call them innovators and executives and academics and students, was to really acknowledge that if you look at it from the perspective of the individual, what we used to call in the olden days consumers, but that's a pretty narrow way of thinking about them, is that their impression of you, your brand, is a result of all of the ways that they interact with you, that they don't make a distinction. We don't make a distinction between what we hear in an advertisement and what we experience when we experience the product. And in fact, if there's a disconnect, then the credibility and the meaningfulness and the effectiveness of the advertising falls flat. Yeah. So it was really for starters just to be able to sort of expand much more broadly the way that we even think about it from package design to product design to certainly customer service that which in the days of outsourcing we were like oh customer service let's let's throw that out of our organization because that's not our core competency our core competency is making products and selling it and the understanding that bringing that back in is probably one of the best ways to understand what um, your customers are really thinking about you so so for starters, for starters, just really trying to expand the notion of all of these touch points and the, and the notion of how important they are to consider all of them. And then once you do that, um, you realize very quickly that if they are not orchestrated, if there's not coherency, they don't have to be exactly the same, but if there's not a sort of a strategic, coherent concept around them and orchestration for how they are brought to life at each stage of an interaction with a particular audience customer or intended customer, then you're really not necessarily 
maximizing the effectiveness of how they all work together and the synergy that can happen between them. And conversely, that you're in fact harming it. So you could be doing great stuff over here in one part of one touch point and something not so great over here and counterbalancing it, but not really being able to measure that interaction and, and synergy. Do you think this phenomenon that you're describing is responsible for some of the mergers we've seen in the advertising business, even within WPP, Wonderman emerged with J. Walter Thompson, and so a great creative shop in, in J. Walter Thompson joined together with Wonderman, which is a great data shop to get that more full view of, of the client's world. Do you think that's at play? I do. I think that's that's a sort of a, a somewhat small slice of it where you have, you're bringing back together the media part with the creative part. And there was certainly a lot of discussion over the years as to whether it was a good idea to break it up in the first place. Right. Um, but I, I think some of the other mergers and acquisitions that happened, not necessarily whether they're successful or not, but the intent to uh, merge with consulting firms who yep. went back up, you know, to the more strategic level about what is it that more broadly that we're trying to do. And in theory, you know, taking on the kinds of roles that the McKinsey's and the BCG's took on to think more broadly about what is it that we're trying to achieve and how are we trying to achieve it through all of the different aspects of our corporation touch points. So I think that there was an effort there to do that. In addition to the sort of, if you will, sort of lower down aspects of, of just within the traditional realm of marketing and advertising. Yeah. I talked with Mel Edwards, the CEO of Wonderman Thompson, uh, back a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And that is one of her prime initiatives is to become more of a consultant to her clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've talked with some of my buddies at Edelman too, Jen Cohen in particular, who heads up their uh, New York office. And how they think about in the past, not necessarily reactive, of course, that's a very simplistic thing, but thinking about public relations in a much more proactive and strategic and forward-thinking way about how the organization as a whole, because of course, with technology especially, it's not whether there's going to be a crisis or a breach, it's, it's when and how big. And so the digitization has forced them to be far more strategic and to work with their organizations or their traditional partners in, in new and different ways that are, again, sort of broader and more holistic out of necessity. Yeah. I want to learn more about the future of advertising program at, at Wharton that you were involved in up until 2018. Can you tell me about the kind of work that you did there and the, the types of people who were involved with that program and and the conversations that you had with them. It sounds like a, a great group of people. Oh, it was amazing. I miss everybody, although we keep in touch. I felt like it was uh, it was truly a community that was um, that was brought together. The original concept was launched in 2008, early 2008. And if we think back about what was going on, then it was a pretty different world than now. Yep. Should we do social media? I don't know what is that <laughs> you know it's like oh that's just and you know everything that wasn't even in existence then but everybody was feeling back on their heels about what was going on and so the notion was to sort of take an academic independent approach and bring lots of different kinds of parties together different types of agencies 
from different kinds of agencies, but certainly you know, academics, researchers, neuroscientists, cultural anthropologists, creatives, as well yeah. as the media, t- you know, so all different, trying to take you know, a mosaic picture of it, again, also very intentionally international, to say, what, where are we going? And instead of kind of reacting to everything, is there a way for us to get ahead of this, to foresee the future, um, so that we can be more proactive in what's coming along and and take a hold of it that way. So that was sort of the initial thing. And I think what was fun about it, Mark, was that it it brought together some amazing organizations, but it, it was also the type of people who wanted to be part of that. Everybody kind of had to put their, you know, I know everything hat at the door. Right. Or if that's who you were, you, you didn't bother coming because it was so much about listening. Chuck Porter was one of our original board members and you know, he just said, look, none of us knows everything. And if we can all sort of share something, we are all going to be better off. So there was really a sense of camaraderie and respect that I think I really enjoyed. It was also helpful to have an academic setting. So it was, again, independent in that regard. And we always included students to bring the next generation concepts yeah. and reactions along. So that was always encouraging. But what we came to understand, we, we started by trying to do a baseline you know, academics tend to be researchers, and we had a lot of wonderful research organizations, companies um, as part of us too. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a benchmark, a baseline. What do we know now about what works in advertising and marketing? So we can kind of like get the ground solid, and then we can kind of take it from there. Let's let's do an ollie ollie and free about all the research around the globe <laughs> and pull yeah. it all together. And we had this massive conference at the end of 2008 where we did exactly that, I swear, a who's who of researchers, both on the private and public sector side of academics, as well as companies. And it resulted in this, you know, now famous special issue of the Journal of Advertising Research, where we, you know, really nailed it down. We did another one about a year and a half later. But what we found was that those insights, what we knew to really, it was held to a very high standard to sort of this empirical generalization. So it couldn't just be one study. It had to be something that really held up across. Was that what you could really prove about what worked were a lot of little pieces. And as a marketer myself, as a practitioner in the past, I was like, oh, that's nice. I know in this time period for this kind of TV audience for this segment, you know for sure this is what works, but that's not going to really help me run my business. So that's really when we turned to what we became our signature project, which was Advertising 2020. It started out that way in um, 2012, we launched it. But it was really, I think, what became the way that I thought about it and what we all began to think about and certainly was the genesis of the book. What could or should advertising look like in 2020? Not what will it be, not, you know, no forecasting. It's like, what's the best it could be? What if we just... stop for a second and said, if we look out at that point, eight years, with all of that we're seeing coming across the horizon, what's the best it could be? How could, how, you know, what's, what's that look like? What does that really look like? And then the second question was, what should we do now to get ready for that future? And if you imagine it, if you start to get ready now for that imagined future, you're actually co-creating it. So becoming part of creating a more desirable future. And I'm not sure if the book you know, was part of it. But I do feel as though that's how marketers and advertisers and indeed CEOs are thinking about this as something about we have the opportunity to shape what the future is going to be, not just take advantage of what's now or, or react to it. 
So the people who were involved were, were pretty wonderful. Great conversations, I think. The format that we used was uh, a kind of lightning round, 10-minute max presentations of maybe five or six people from a different vantage points on a particular topic, and then discussion of the whole room about what do, what do we do with that, and then kind of coming out with some key takeaways for it. So very uh, participatory, very, very much learning there. It was a great time. I loved it. Yeah. And the time span of this program from 2008 to 2018, you know, the world was changing dramatically in the, in that period of time. There was the financial crisis, the Great Recession, the incredible impact that all of that had on marketing, and then the rise of social media. And, and you know, the options for a marketer were greater than ever. So figuring out the right focus became a, a huge challenge. So I, I think that, you know... Oh, don't, don't look, forget the old digital transformation. Remember that of one? Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I, I've, I was talking to someone recently who said their company is undergoing a digital transformation. And I said, well, you're about 20 years too late. <laughs> 10, whatever. Yeah, but it's, it's ongoing. Yeah. So, so, but that, that time span is, I think, one of the unique 10 year spans in the last 60 years because of the upheaval that happened and continues to happen. I would agree. I would absolutely agree. And I, you know, I sort of joked about, or we both did about digital transformation, and it is certainly ongoing. But when you think about it, because I think that's been perhaps one of the most fundamental, the, the impact of technology change, wouldn't you say, if you just sort of yeah. take a broad sweep in terms of how people run businesses overall, but certainly the world of advertisers and marketers, you know, now with, we don't, we quite can't step away from it because there's still so much that's ongoing and underway, but, but it's essentially, fundamentally, automation and intelligence and efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah. That's what underpins it, right? It's how do we use these technologies and the speed of information and processing and all of those other huge shifts that happened to your point over the last 10 years during that 10 year time frame. You know, how do we how do we really take advantage of it and how do we do that to keep up with massive changes in business models that are yeah. completely disrupting another favorite word that came out during that time period in fundamental ways how we think about bringing products to market and connecting with with people customers what's i think what's interesting i think mark is we look ahead because i just i'm trained now to, to always be kind of trying to look ahead three to five years on what's on the yeah. horizon I think those are all important and good and everybody's still underway you can't not be thinking about how to use the technology that's there to do those things, to, to automate intelligence, et cetera. But it's kind of like we should really start very, very fundamentally right now thinking about things like people and yeah. communities and feelings and humans and empathy. empathy and that are not necessarily anathema to them. But, you know, I come from um, AT&T. We went from analog to digital. So, you know, the analog kinds of things that are about people talking with each other and humans discussing and legacy, regret, aspiration, you know, all of those sorts of things that aren't part of a digital, strictly speaking. Although in talking with my CMO buddies, you know, over the years, they certainly are trying to have it as part of it. But it's a real critical point, I think a critical juncture for us as we move into this next decade 
to define it as we want to, to make sure that that's a, a critical part of it. I'm very, very hopeful and excited and, and want to make sure we really focus on that too. Yeah. It's like, I think John Lennon said that sincerity is the thing. Once you can fake that, you're all set. <laughs> I don't that's who it was attributed to. I don't know whether he actually said it, but you understand the sentiment. I do. And there's so much right now, you know, with, you know, a lot over the last couple of years in particular about purpose-driven businesses. And understandably to that exact quote, you know, there's a lot of skepticism around it. It's like, oh yeah, slap purpose on it. And then everything that you're doing poorly behind it is you're trying to cover it up or greenwash. And uh, I have a lot more empathy for for marketers. I think I do believe marketers and executives in many, many cases, not all, there's some bad players out there, but are trying to do the right thing and are trying to think about this notion of purpose or a North Star or why is this business really in existence? What is the role that we're playing in people's lives? And, you know, taking that way of thinking about it much more seriously as they're going through these necessary business transformations and experimentations with new models and direct to consumer yeah. and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, let's give them a chance. Is that also a give, give peace a chance? That's another <laughs> Exactly. That's another one. Yeah. You know, and as someone who's, I've made my living in digital mm. media and mm. uh, digital marketing for 25 plus years. Mm-hmm. And I think the key word in digital transformation is transformation. It's not digital. It's transforming the organization using some kind of method, whether it's a digital or some other way, changing it, making it fit in the world of today and tomorrow rather than the world of yesterday. I think so. I, you can tell I love words because I think they're so helpful in terms of how we frame things and framing is so important. But when I think of digital transformation or any kind of dis- transformation or even just disruption, I think about, okay, why? Mm-hmm. Yes, to be mm-hmm. in a better world, but transforming to what? what? What are you creating? Is it just more efficiency? Is it just more data? Is it yeah. just more effectiveness? Are you turning people around faster? Or is there something else? What's the, what's the bigger picture here that you're transforming your company relative to the reality of that you're not a solo player in the world. You are, right. You're part of this, this global community. And whether you want to be or not, you, you just are. It's sort of like in the olden days when they say, Do you, are you involved with exporting? It's like, no, well, you are, because if you're not competing, you're being competed against by those who are coming into your market from other countries. So I think that's one of the things, again, sort of back to, you know, picking your chin up to a little bit more, like, where where is this transformation going? What are the qualities of that transformation on the other side that you want to keep. You may want to bring along some of the things that were really essential to the very forming of your corporation or organization that you were trying to achieve. And what do you keep? What do you, what do you not keep? And and what do you, what do you have for an aspiration for going forward? What's the best it could should be? You mentioned your CMO buddies earlier, and you talk with a lot of CMOs on Series XM CMO Spotlight on Channel 132, I'll <laughs> add. So what are some highlights of the discussions you've had maybe over the last year or so that pop into your mind? Yeah, and just um, thank you. Thank you for asking. I, I will give a shout out to my co-host, Jenny Rooney, who is the Forbes CMO Network Editor. 
actually, who was yeah. just promoted to uh, to now be responsible for the all the different communities that Forbes has to think about them. Well, congratulations, yeah, Jenny. Yeah, she, um, you know, she really did an amazing job in bringing together that the the CMO community as a network of people, mm-hmm. of individuals, and that was very much her reporting style too, is to sort of get to the people behind it. And so that was that was the genesis of our show, which we actually. It started as Marketing Matters and a subset of that about five years ago. And then we branched off and did our own show. So for the past, I guess we've done it for four years. I would say that, you know, I tend to I tend to listen in for things, of course, maybe we all do, for what gets people most excited. And you, I'm, that's what you do on your podcasts, right? Yeah, exactly, that's that's yeah. the fun part of the conversations. And so that's been really exciting to hear. And some of the things that I I do hear is the process of transformation. When the realization has been made, oftentimes, as you know, when it's when a new CMO comes in, have been asked to come in, either because they wanted to make a change or because that's just what happens. There's such turnover as we know with CMOs. So the first thing they do is go on the listening tour because they're marketers. And what else do marketers do but listen, right? And understand and try to figure out what's motivating people. So hearing about that journey and how they've gone about it, both internally and externally, internally in the organizations, as well as externally with their their clients has been fun. One of them was Gail Tifford, who was the, who is, I still believe, the uh, chief marketing officer for WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. Yep, yep. And it was really interesting as they rethought and went through their transformation from just food to thinking about the whole person and the whole individual and understanding that weight is more than just what you eat. It's a frame of mind and to think holistically. So you can imagine going out and talking to people with that framework was interesting. And she talked about not only the broad research that they did, but also the small data, as they say, to have the kind of one-on-one conversations or literally in-home conversations with some of the untapped audiences with men and with understanding. So how do you think about weight and what do you think about it? What does it mean to you to be healthy? And what is that in your lives? And, you know, almost hearing her choke up to say, you know, what they told us about how important it is. And for me to hear that firsthand, as well as my team, and to go back and have that as part of what motivated us as we went through our transformation was, was really powerful and exciting. In addition, of course, and having that then inform the kind of data that they wanted to go out and, and gather and use to, uh, to become effective. The power of a story. Huh? The power of the story, the power of narrative. It's what's in people's heads, right? It's what they, interesting, you know, the, not quite my CMO buddies, but of course I think about, you know, those conversations. And when I was in Vermont this past week, I attended the Northeast Organic Farmers Association of Vermont, the NOFA conference in Vermont for three days. And they're all about what it says. It's their 49th annual meeting. They're coming up on their 50th, which is amazing. But, But that's really what they talk about. You know, they're trying to find how to keep small farms alive in Vermont and understand how farms and communities and biodiversity come together. And so they're really thinking about changing the narrative about how people think about where they get their food and the connection between food and who makes the food and for the people right. to make the food and the connection to it. So indeed, the story matters so much. And I think that is one of the fun things that us marketers love is that story part of it and the narrative. Well, Catherine, this has been just wonderful. It's it's great to pick your brain and hear the stories and learn about 
the future of advertising and, and everything you've done in your career. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Now I know why everybody is such a big fan. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, next time we're hoping to have Michael Mathias in to chat about retail in the COVID-19 age. So stay tuned. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. Stay healthy and see you next time. You want cash. You want to get stuff done. So what do you do? You buy 5-Hour Energy, of course. You upload the receipt to 5hewin.com, then find out if you instantly won 10, 100, or even $1,000. Then you drink that 5-Hour Energy and cut through your to-do list like a hot knife through butter. 5-Hour Energy, the official sponsor of getting stuff done. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 and a legal resident of the U.S. Ends June 30th, 2021. For rules, visit 5hewin.com slash rules. Void where prohibited. Message and data rates may apply.